the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome once again to a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's only podcast dedicated to Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. Brought to you with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association here in Japan and broadcast from Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center here in the heart of Tokyo. My name is Justin Potts. I'm one of your regular hosts here on the show. And this week we are starting to explore the world of sake rice and rice growing. We had a sake rice episode uh, that John uh, was kind enough to take us on a, a little journey. Um, today, however, we're actually traveling across the pond to Arkansas to explore the world of sake rice uh, as a business uh, and a crop, as a tool for brewers um, in its historical context in the in the United States. And we're going to be doing that together with the folks over at Isbell Farms who have been pioneers in bringing sake rice varieties to the U.S. and making those available for uh, sake breweries uh, over on the continent over there. There's a whole lot uh, that I would love to dig into and that we need to dig into uh, as a show with regards to uh, the world of sake rice, the different varieties and how those are treated and how those are examined. And we do indeed intend to get into all of those, uh, but we are just lucky enough to have the opportunity to connect with the folks uh, over at Isabel Farms. And I'm so excited to be able to speak with them today and learn about the story of how they got into doing what it is they do of all of the varieties out there and all of the past they could have explored, uh, how they were led down the path to Japanese for, uh, rice varieties and sake, specific rice varieties uh, in particular. Um, and so I'm very excited to meet and speak with them uh, this morning where I'm at and this evening where they are all at. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Evening. Excellent. This evening here, I will, I'll ask you each of you to kind of just kind of, I will go around the horn and ask you to introduce yourselves here, just so we know who we've got. We've got a full house. We've got the, maybe not the whole family, but a, a good chunk of the family joining us here this evening. Um, why don't we go ahead and start um, with Chris. Chris, why don't you go ahead and just uh, say a quick hello and tell us who you are and your place on the farm and uh, give us a few words to a little bit of context. Well, hello, and my name is Chris Isbell and uh, I am, I guess, the patriarch now, uh, the one that's been around the farm the longest these days. Uh, I am Whitney's dad and Jeremy's father-in-law and Mark's dad. They'll be speaking here in just a little bit. Excellent. Chris, thank you. And thank you so much for staying up with us uh, this evening. I really appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you. And I'm just going to go right around uh, my little Zoom screen here. Um, let's pop up to uh, Whitney and Jeremy. Would you both mind just saying hello real quick? Telling us, tell us about where you're at on the farm there. Hello, Justin. It's uh, I'm Jeremy. Uh, this is my wife, Whitney. I'm, I am the son-in-law. I'll let her speak for herself. But, um, <laughs> I've, I've been on the farm 25 of 26 years, I guess now. So I've been around for a, for a good long while. Um, happy to be here. Not in Isabel, but I guess one by default at this point. You, you got roped into it. 
Uh, I did. I did at a young age and uh, happy to be here. Excellent. Thanks, Jimmy. And I'm Whitney Isbell Jones. I'm Chris's daughter, Mark's sister, and Jeremy's wife. And um, I've been on the farm my whole life. I've never lived farther than two miles from where I am right now. So always been here. Love it. Excellent. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And last but certainly not least, Mark, how you doing there? Good, Justin. Good to talk to you today. I'm Mark Isabel. I'm Chris's son, and um, I'm the fourth generation of, um, of rice farmers here at Isabel Farms. Excellent. Perfect. Um, so we've got a full house here today, and I look, I'm look. i really excited to hear from all of you because I know that you all have your own uh, perspectives um, experiences there on the farm. Um, just to kind of get us rolling here, I said, I one reason I'm actually really excited to do this show is, of course, to explore the nature of um, you know, the farming and the process and the business of working with sake rice and sake rice varieties in the U.S. But I'm just really excited that we can use this show to hopefully get our listeners connected just with the nature of sort of the state of agriculture and rice farming in the U.S. as well, too. Um, use this as an opportunity to sort of connect the, um, our listeners with that and give them a little appreciation for um, that place in the in the agricultural landscape. And so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just telling me just a little bit about the nature of rice farming in the U.S. You know, what are sort of the main producing regions and, you know, how does Arkansas fit into all of that? And sort of how do you all view yourselves in the in the kind of the greater landscape of things? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that, Justin. So Arkansas um, is um, far and away the largest rice producing state in the United States, we grow almost three times as much rice as the second um, largest state. And together with our adjacent states, we grow over 80% of the rice here in the United States. So there's a lot of rice grown here in the Mid-South with some also grown out in California. And um, it's an important part of the economy here. It's um, an important part of agriculture. And um, yeah, we're grateful to be a part of it. Is, I guess when, out of all the different, you know, grains or different crops you could focus on, I guess, what are sort of the, the advantages of doing rice? You're all, obviously, you've sort of zoned in on a, on a specific segment that sort of helps you differentiate, I think, from um, maybe a number of other rice farmers uh, in the region. But just as a, as a crop to work with, what, what, would, what, are, what are the benefits of, of working with that? And sort of what are those challenges that might be associated with that as well? Well, I could I could speak to that a little bit, Justin. I think part of the reason we're rice farmers is just where we're located. You know, the, the land and the climate is suitable for growing rice. So that's a big part of it. There are definitely other crops grown, you know, in the area here, but um, our farm specifically is just suited for rice production. Um, I guess the I guess the advantages and disadvantages are a little bit similar you know as you look at agriculture throughout the united states rice is a really small portion of that you know as opposed to corn soybeans even wheat you know the the acreage is so much larger in those other crops but it really creates kind of a tight community of rice growers so that's a we're, we're kind of a big family you know we don't know every rice farmer in the mid-south for sure but we know a lot of them and we have a lot of good relationships so the challenges that we have, it's easy to get, um, it's easy to find people that relate to you because it is such a, uh, 
a specialized crop. You know, a lot of people don't even realize that rice is grown in, in Arkansas or even in the United States for that matter. Yeah, I can imagine. It really is. You meet people even in our area. I mean, even within 30, 45 minutes from the farm that, that are not aware that rice is even grown yeah. in the area. You know, they think it comes from, from Japan or from China or, or somewhere else, or they may know that, that it's grown in another state, but they don't even realize it's grown here. Yeah. So um, that's, I don't know that that's an advantage or a disadvantage, but it's definitely something that's kind of interesting yeah. to think about. Absolutely. Is a lot of the rice that's grown domestically, you know, is a lot of it consumed domestically or does it end up overseas? Do you know, I, again, I know and understand that you guys are in a bit of a specific segment there, but yeah. just. Yeah, Mark may know the exact numbers. I'm not sure, but I believe it's around 50% is um, consumed in, in the United States and about 50% is exported. Okay. But Mark may know Mark may know those numbers better than I do. Uh, I mean, on any given year, it's it's right there around that mark with with half of what's produced consumed here domestically and half exported to to different countries around the world. Many of which are um, in Central America or the Caribbean, and then but also um, also elsewhere around the world. Interesting. And, and Jeremy, you mentioned that you have the climate for it. What is a what is a suitable climate then for rice growing? What are the characteristics of that in the U.S.? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we have, we have fairly mild winters here, um, hot, humid, summertime weather. We have the four seasons. That's, that's basically it. We have a definite um, spring, winter, summer, and fall. Of course, you can grow rice in more um, tropical climates also, but we're probably... Um, if you look at where rice is grown anywhere in the world in the latitude, it's, it's all within a, a pretty well a specific band as far as north. You know, you can go south and, and still grow rice, but we're in that, that temperate climate that just makes it uh, pretty well perfect for rice growing. I'm, I'm, we're going to kind of get into uh, a bit more of your story and, and, and things here and sort of the unique nature of what you're all up to on the farm. But like, is say, Jeremy, you mentioned that it's you know, it's such a it's a very significant crop, obviously. But there's yeah. there are a lot of people out there who just who don't like I said don't realize that it's grown locally or even that it's grown domestically. Um, it's pervasive, but at the same time, it's elusive at the same and it's you know. What is it? What is it that you that you all? And this could be for anyone, but what is it that you feel like people, or you would like for people to understand about rice or about rice growing, or you know, or the relationship to the region, or um, what what is it that's important? Do you feel like people are missing out on, or that they you know by knowing or understanding a bit better, they could have a bit more appreciation for um, the crop or the work. Like Jeremy said, people don't understand that there's rice even grown in the United States a lot of times. And um, I don't think they understand the um, significance or the uh, importance of rice as a crop. It's, um, it's, of course, you go to the grocery store, you know, rice is so versatile. Uh, you can make so many things in the kitchen, uh, you know, cookbooks are full of uh, rice recipes in some way or the other. It could be, it can be sweet or savory. I know the Japanese people don't usually think of it as sweet, but here we, you know, we have rice pudding and 
things like that. But rice is different from, um, I was trying to think of this, you know, wheat, you make flour and uh, you can cook with that, but you can't, you don't just eat the wheat. In corn, you can make cornmeal, uh, but you don't just eat the corn unless it's on the cob or, or off the cob, green, you know, unripe. Um, but rice, uh, once you take the husk off of it, it's a meal right there. You can eat brown rice or you can further process it, white rice. Um, it's it's pretty unique plant. Um, of course, we, we think a lot of it. We wish that everybody else would uh, use more of it. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's really it's really unique. Yeah. Well, and it, I think too, as the as consumers become more aware and more um, not just aware, but more um, they care more about where their food is grown um, and who grows it, and they want to they want to they want to attach a face with the product that that they have in front of them. You know, so that's part of the story that we want to get out is that we are a part of that community that's growing their food. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important in our story. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important point. You know, Jeremy brought up that a lot of people don't realize rice is grown here in the state or here in the United States. Um, but I think the what underpins that is the fact that most people don't give a lot of thought to where any of their food comes from. And as he was mentioning, that's you know part of what we're doing in social media and, and all of that sort of thing is just trying to communicate here. Here's where the food comes from and um, what that process looks like and try to connect people a little bit more to that and to that experience. You know, back a little over a year ago, when COVID, you know, first started kind of ramping up here in Arkansas, I remember the, the runs on the stores, you know, for different products. And I remember for the first time in my life, in a store here in the United States, going to the rice and beans aisle of our local grocery store, and seeing, you know, limit one or two packages per customer and the shelf was mostly empty. And, you know, what we realized there, what I think a lot of people realized that they'd never given much thought to is the fact that um, food is not guaranteed to be at that grocery store when you walk in there. And there's a long chain, a long supply chain that goes into delivering that food there. And if any one part of that breaks, um, you know, we've got significant issues. And so, um, you know, we feel like it's important that all the others along the supply chain do a good job in, you know, in delivering that product. But we also think that, you know, it's our responsibility to make sure that it's grown in a, um, with a good quality and with adequate supply that we don't ever have to worry about going into the store and not seeing food there. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something that I, I, I'm, I'm hoping in, in a way it turns out to be good things that a lot of people were woke up yeah. to that a little bit, that it isn't, that it isn't a given that all those things are just right. there, um, that there's, that there are people and there are hands involved in actually making that a reality. And so, yeah, fingers crossed. We, we all learned a few lessons, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that what, what flew off the shelves mm -hmm. were the rice and the beans. It was like for the first time people understood the nutritional value of what we had and how you could something you could keep for an extended period of time you know, that had a good shelf life and and all of a sudden what we grew you know became yeah. extremely important to people. something that might be really overlooked in yeah. in 
more normal times became something that people wanted to stock their pantry with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's funny. This is it's a bit of a tangent, but um, here where I live, I'm obviously I'm in Japan and I'm surrounded by rice fields and rice farming is a pretty significant um, practice in the area where I live. And uh, when all the COVID things set off or we had a, um, some serious typhoons and some flooding and power outages uh, a couple autumns ago, and there were, we've gone through a couple scenarios where uh, in the past few years where um, they, <laughs> the supermarkets markets have basically been ransacked of um, you know, certain products and rice being one of them. And the, one of the most interesting things I noticed is rice disappeared uh, off the shelves of all the major supermarkets. Um, but what was interesting was that it wasn't gone. It was just that people didn't know where to get rice outside of the supermarket, whereas it was actually available through a lot of other outlets. There were other small markets. There were other sellers. There were other farmers. There were actually, there was access to a lot of not just rice, but a lot of really, really great rice that was just sitting, but it didn't move because people didn't know how to get to it. It was, it was a very, it was very eye-opening. I mean, I think it says something too about um, consumption at home versus consumption in restaurants. Um, the supply chain difference we see, or we saw here had a lot to do with the fact that people were consuming at home more, um, which of course, either, either way is good, but um, it just shows you the complexity of the, of the supply chains. Something that I noticed people would ask us, you know, at the very beginning of COVID when there were no groceries, Y'all, they would say, well, y'all are going to be fine because your grain bins are, are full of rice. <laughs> and, and that was true to an extent, but it, it really pointed out to me how people don't understand the, the process of how rice, you know, you, that you can't necessarily eat it right out of the field with the hole on it. It has to go through and be milled. And they didn't, you know, a lot of people even around us didn't understand the process of processing rice. Yeah, so Absolutely. Well, that kind of... Uh... And that kind of brings back something, Chris, that you mentioned earlier as well, too. Um, the idea of at least rice in, of, of course, you you know, you have to, it, it, there is a bit of a process involved in getting it to a state where it can be consumed, but, you know, different from say wheat or corn or how a lot of those are used. Um, of course, you can process rice up and down into all different kinds of products. But one of the finer features is that it's, in its pretty much raw state is that it's incredibly nutritious and fulfilling and there's so much value in there. And when you mentioned, you know, people's sort of curiosity and wanting to, not just curiosity, but just general interest in wanting to have a little bit more of a close relationship with their food. A lot of the, I imagine that a lot of the weed or corn or those products, they get so processed up and down that they end up in so many different things. Whereas, rice i mean you can enjoy something delicious and of a high quality that there there were very few stages in between you know where it went from the field to you know your your plate um yeah. and it's pretty much in the in that in that same state you can you can envision what's happened to it you can trace it right back to the farmer through it there's it's something pretty special there um Anyway, that's already got me off on a little bit of a tangent. I'm kind of good at that for better or for worse. Um, but uh, all, but this is all conversation I'm very, very, very curious about. But sort of, um, as I was talking with uh, then Chris, I, I guess we'll shift over then to 
um, sort of how you all um, got into this. Um, I was wondering just so with Isabel Farms is this, you know, how long has this been a family business and has it always been rice? Well, the family goes back well over a hundred years. My great granddad, you know, grew some cotton. He, he had 10 kids and uh, they had, they also um, had sawmills or lumber mills. Uh, they cleared the land and uh, sold the lumber. And then they planted cotton. And um, my granddad also planted cotton and had cows and horses and mules and all of that. And my dad, when he got out of the Navy after World War II, uh, he started growing the first rice. And so this farm, this rice farm is like 75 years of rice. Um, but the family farm actually goes back over, well over a hundred years. Uh, just on the people that I remember, I remember my great granddad. And um, so, you know, the family thing, it goes back that far, but the rice is for 75 years, I think. The why, um, rice just, I think 1920 something rice was first tried. They tried growing rice in Arkansas for the first time, maybe, maybe earlier than that. I'm, but um, there, there's nothing to rotate, no chemical or anything. And so they would clear the land and the, the uh, cleared land uh, we called new ground here was really rich. And they'd plant a crop of rice on it. And there, were no, there was no grass growing in the timber you know, when they cleared it. So it was free of grass and they would harvest the the rice and then they might do that two years and then they'd leave it laying out and plowed up all year and then try to grow another crop of rice. Um, so that's kind of how it started uh, with my dad. And then later on, things became a lot more uh, easy as far as uh, chemical control of, of weeds and grass and things like that. So the, um, the evolution of the thing is, uh, you know, it goes from the mule, uh, horses and mules plowing, and then we get tractors. And then uh, I think electricity finally hit the rural area. <laughs> and uh, then you had the McCormick Reaper, which is uh, motorized, or the combine, instead of harvesting by hand, which is very labor intensive. Then on up into recent years uh, we had laser technology and we started we had land forming taking place and um, crop dusters you know we would fertilize about with an airplane and um, that took a lot of the labor out of it and recently uh, GPS in the last few years has been a big big part of uh, what makes our farm work uh, really so well nowadays. I mentioned one time to you talking with you about the zero grade. My dad kind of came up with that and that was during the laser technology. We were uh, land forming or moving the hills, cutting the hills off and putting them in the sloughs and the holes, low, low places. Um, we used the lasers to start that and we, 
we started leveling our fields in 40 and 80 acre blocks completely flat. Uh, so with the levee around it, you could drive around the field and look at the look at every field. Um, that was part of probably what we'll talk about later, sustainability. Um, was part of the uh, water saving. Uh, I'll leave some of that for later for Mark and Jeremy to answer, but that's kind of how it started and where it's headed. Excellent, perfect, perfect, perfect. And then, so just a real quick, I wanna, I wanna get into the sort of how you transitioned into Japanese rice varieties, but just real quick, just to give our listeners just a bit of context. Right now then, what are, what are the main crops, varieties grown on the farm? Sort of how is your, your energy and resources, how are those sort of balanced at the moment? I'll let Mark take that one. Sure. So, um, you know, one thing I was thinking of when I was talking there about evolution, I know your question now is about what's yeah. going on. But, um, you know, if you look at what he was saying from going from the mule to the tractor to, to but you know the the early evolution of agriculture in the 20th century was about more power about how do we um, have more power to um to adapt the land to plow the land to do this sort of thing and then toward the latter part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century now what i think it's more precision it's how do we how do we take these tools that have now been developed and be able to deliver the things we need to the fields more precisely. So whereas, you know, we were able to start using airplanes to distribute crop nutrition back, you know, I guess in the 60s, 70s, um, 70s, I'm not sure exactly when, you know, now we can do it with much greater precision so that we're putting exactly the right amount in the right spot. And um, so it's, you know, my experiences over the past 40 years has been watching things become a lot more precise through the things he talked about, like GPS and precision application technologies. So it's kind of interesting to think back how much that's evolved over 100 years. But as far as what we're growing now, um, a large part of our farm still produces long grain rice, which the Mid-South um, primarily grows long grain rice, which, um, you know, which is used either for domestic consumption or export. Um, and the sake rice, um, along with some medium grain, uh, makes up a smaller part of our uh, of our portfolio. And um, you know, you you also asked earlier, like why why rice? And I I tell people that uh, you know we grow rice allows us to grow rice. I mean that's what wants to grow there um, rather than than something else. But since we've made that decision to only grow rice it's important that we find a way to diversify within rice. And that's where um, the sake rice and the medium grains and the other Japanese things that we will probably talk about later come in. So that is a growing portion of our portfolio, but still rather small compared to the bigger acres of long grain. Okay, excellent, excellent. So then I guess then how, how did Japanese rice varieties come about then? of all of the different, I mean, rice, there's many, many varieties of many, very different you know, all over the world. People have their own individual preferences and there's you know, different opportunities for all these different varieties. How and why these Japanese varieties? How did that get started? For that story, I think we should go back to my dad for sure. Go back to Chris, excellent. Ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Chris, so Chris, so, are, are you are you responsible for then for bringing these varieties into the into the mix? Yes, it was a it was, there was a game of ping pong going on at a uh, rice research um, meeting that I went to. It's where all of the um, all of the PhDs from all over the world meet and uh, talk about rice and the, and the papers they've written about rice and fertility and rice, everything rice. Uh, they all meet a couple, uh, every two years, I believe it is. And I started going to that. I'm just a farmer and I, I don't have a degree of agriculture or anything like that. But uh, I'm very intrigued by to learn things about rice specifically, but about anything actually. But uh, I started going to these meetings and I was one of the first growers to ever go there. And, and so you register and they give you a name tag and they want to know who you work for. And I told them I was just a farmer and everybody kind of looked up and was surprised. And so they wrote grower on my tag and all of the uh, doctors and researchers were intrigued that, you know, the farmer came to one of those meetings but I wanted to know what was the newest technology, what was the newest idea uh, about rice. And so I was at, during one of the breaks, and by the way, some of those PhDs are very good ping pong players. I to <laughs> so I was, I'd just gotten beat by one of them and was standing against the wall and there was a Japanese fellow just down from me and he was kind of all alone and nobody was talking to him and, um, so, uh, Southern, uh, hospitality kind of kicked in and I wanted to say something to him so he wouldn't feel awkward. So I started talking to him and he was a, um, he was an economist, a rice economist. And so we started talking and of course we were talking about rice and he said that, um, the American rice wasn't like the Japanese rice. And I said, well, how's it different? And he started telling me and he said, and the best rice is uh, Koshihikari. He said, but it won't grow anywhere but in Japan. And so, um, you know, I'm that fellow that kind of, that struck a chord with me. And I wanted to know why it would only grow in Japan because we grow rice in Arkansas, you know, all the time. And he said, well, it just won't. It's a very special variety and it won't grow anywhere but Japan. And so I came home with the idea that I was going to find out whether it would grow in Arkansas or not. And so I acquired some seed and started growing it. And I increased that seed and increased that seed until I had enough for a taste test. I didn't know, I mean, I could have cooked it and tasted it, but I, did, I didn't know what I was looking for as far as whether it was good or bad. And so I ended up sending the sample to a Nishimoto trading company in Los Angeles. And uh, they were very interested in trying it. And some of the other people that I had uh, asked to try it were not interested in trying it. And I said, why? And they said, because rice, Koshikari won't grow anywhere but Japan. But Nishimoto was willing to try it. And so they tried it and liked it and were very surprised. And at that time, I suppose everybody in Japan thought that it would only grow in Japan because we started selling it here in the United States and it became big news. And all of the media outlets in Japan ended up coming to Arkansas. 
and I'm the, I can't I can't think of one who didn't. Every newspaper, every magazine, every news channel. Now NHK came and they stayed a whole year, documented our our growing a whole year of Koshihikari, and uh, actually made a ninety minute documentary about that. Uh, Isabel Farms. So uh, we had helicopters, we had limousines, we had Greyhound buses. Um, and the kids were growing up in this atmosphere, and it was really great. They were getting a worldview that uh, they never could have gotten any other way. I'm very grateful for that. So we started selling the rice, and then here in the United States, uh, because uh, the uh, market was closed into Japan until 1996, the market opened, and we were able to send our rice into Japan through Itochu Corporation. Very nice people, very good company. And we, they started marketing the rice through, um, what was the name of the? Family Mart. Family Mart in Japan. So Family Mart was selling our rice and they had a contest on if you bought our rice and you were eligible to win a trip to Isabel Farms in Arkansas from Japan. So that is so out. wild. It is crazy. Yeah, just for our listeners, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with Family Mart, I mean, there are tens of thousands of Family Marts across Japan. I mean, they're what's one of the you know primary um, convenience store chains here. Convenience stores here are a little bit different. Um, they serve a bit of a different role than those in the U.S. They're arguably, arguably significantly more convenient here and it's just the degree of services and the quality of products and things that are on offer it's you know it's a lot of people depend upon these places day to day um for a lot of things and the idea of walking into a family mart and getting a and somehow winning or <laughs> procuring <laughs> a trip to arkansas for for I, I can't even imagine and that's so wild and this was what 30 years ago, something. Yeah. 25 years ago. That is so wild. So they marketed our rice. Uh, the other rice that was uh, brought in at that time, they co-mingled it with Japanese rice and sold it that way. But our rice was sold with our picture on the back, a character of our family on the front, and the Isabel Farms on the package. And the rice sold out in two weeks. It was wow. gone. And uh, so a, a good, a big splash. Not a lot of, uh, I mean, it was fun and everything, but because there was, um, uh, to get into the country, there was a tariff that had to be paid. And so the rice, you know, I mean, we made some, made some money, but it wasn't a big, big windfall mm. um, because of that. But we met a lot of people. I've been to Japan probably eight times. Uh, this I went to the Family Mart showcase where all of the people that owned the Family Mart stores came and visited with me, and I visited with them. It's, that, that part has really been great, the people that we've gotten to know and to understand how Japan views rice. Uh, America, I don't think there's any place in the world that really sees it the way the Japanese people see it, and how important it is to them. And I took away 
uh, that feeling with me. Um, you know, farmers all over the world are kindred spirits. We all go through the same things. We have the same heartaches and the same problems and weather and government and all the things that can happen. And uh, I, I, I really feel a kindred connection to the Japanese farmer through that. So that's, that's kind of how the, the Japanese rice began. That's what, so it's so fascinating that you're, but then your initial market then was Japan of all places. <laughs> well, initially we sold it to the domestically here to Japanese okay. Americans and, and okay. people who are interested in that Japanese yeah. Americans, visitors, tourists, and, you know, but it did really well here. Okay. So you, you had pretty, had a pretty solid, I mean, it was, it was well, it was well received domestically in the in the markets and in the places that it was that yes it was we um placed into okay yeah we had um we sold it through nishimoto trading company we started in 92 selling uh domestically nobody else in, our, in the united states has ever grown that or tried to grow it and um then in 96 that's uh, when the market opened into japan okay so that was our first avenue to japan interesting Could, stepping back just a bit get it the process right you originally you were initially told that there's no way this is going to grow uh in arkansas um, yeah you, you set out to prove them wrong what was the were what do you remember recall any of the challenges or the things that um you experienced in trying to in trying to realize that did you pretty much treat it as you would you know, most of the other rice crops that you were working with, or do you, do you recall any, any, any parts of that experience? Well, at first, you know, that's exactly what we did. We treated it just like everything else. Um, I held back a little bit of the nutrients because I wanted to see what the, you know, I didn't want it to, to fall on the ground or I wanted to get a good look at it, but we tried to grow it just like everything else. And, and eventually we tweaked this and tweaked that and um, we're able to uh, get the quality that we wanted. That's one of the things that, you know, for instance, long grain, uh, nobody really cares um, too much about taste or texture so much here in the United States and other, place, other places they do. But um, the Japanese rice, uh, the people, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to say this and I hope it don't offend anyone, but everyone in Japan is a rice expert. <laughs> every, every wife, every husband, every, you know, every, everybody that eats rice, uh, they know what they like. Now here in the United States, uh, it's uh, something to be mixed with some other, maybe gravy or, mm. or something else and, and consumed. But uh, in Japan, they eat just the rice. And so they're very keen about the uh, the smoothness of the grain, the uh, the the aroma when they open the pot, yeah, um, the uh, shininess of the rice when they open the pot, the texture is very important, mm. and uh, then the uh, taste. And to me, the koshihikari is a little sweet taste, especially an aftertaste. And our family uh, would. If you gave them a choice of any rice in the world, they would eat kosher curry. Yeah. 
Yeah, once uh, uh, that's that's a really interesting point, and I guess I, I hadn't thought of that so much. And on the on the reverse, I hope this it doesn't come off wrong. But it's interesting that you mentioned that there isn't much of a focus on I don't want to say quality, but the particular the particular qualities of the grain or of the rice in the U.S. that it serves as more of a it's it's like a it's a base a platform for for other things to, right. to thrive on, you uh, know? So I imagine it becomes difficult then to differentiate yourself on quality domestically if that's not a major focus. I mean, of course you've got, sure, I imagine there's high-end restaurants that source locally and pay ridiculous amounts of money for a certain rice, but I don't, you know, I've, I've been sort of, I said, my relationship with rice started when I came to Japan. So I don't have much of a, a, a touch point for, uh, or at least any real relationship um, or experience with that being in the US. So I find that interesting. So then what is, it becomes a little bit of a tangent again here, but then what is, you know, growing varieties for domestic consumption then, then what becomes that differentiating factor? Like, is there, is there something that, well, there, with so many choices out there in the long run market you know of course there are aromatics there's basmati there yeah. are things like that 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 the quality is really recognized but then there's the bigger market just the uh long grain uh rice that, you know that you would eat uh, on a steam table or something like that to be added with uh, stir fry or whatever yeah. but the uh, the Japanese uh, of anybody in Arkansas, I have been asked, uh, there are some researchers that were trying different varieties and they didn't have anyone to uh, do a taste test. And so myself, my wife, uh, Whitney and Mark are the uh, local experts or the regional experts in taste tests. And I, and Whitney and Mark are really good, and Judy and I are uh, pretty good. So if I've, if I've got a variety that I won't taste test it, I'll send it to both of them. They'll, yeah. they'll let me know just what, what they think. Yeah, excellent. I'm curious, and what was, did your, did your Koshi Ikari then, did it pass the taste test with the, uh, the ping pong plane researcher then? What was, what was his reaction? Finally, finally, we're still friends. I see him occasionally. <laughs> But uh, finally, he, he was able to taste it. But he helped, like I said, everybody's in Japan as a rice expert. And he was telling me, he was telling me what was wrong with it. You know, maybe it was a little bit too dry when it was milled. It wasn't uh, at the proper moisture and, and this. Or how old is this? You know, was this kept in the freezer? Was this uh, all these things? Um, <laughs> uh, he finally, he finally did like yeah, <laughs> he came <Hey>. around. <laughs> nice. So then we're talking, what is it? It's in Family Mart, you're looking at 20, so you're looking at what, the mid 90s or so. Um, and that's with, um, you know, Kochi Ikari specifically. Um, looking at sake rice varieties then, was that sort of a natural extension of what you were already doing? Or what was it that spurred um, that? exploration into that into that realm well we were already growing the japanese rice and so 
we wanted to know if other varieties were maybe better suited for Arkansas than the Koshi Hikari. But um, so we started trying other varieties. And at one time, I think um, we had just small, just rows of rice, different varieties, small rows uh, of about 40 different uh, Japanese varieties. And um, one of those was Yamada Nishiki. And of course, we grew the rows of rice and we looked at them agronomically, whether they, you know, they look good. Did they look like they'd have a good yield? Did they, were they any better quality than Koshi Hikari? And we didn't find one that was. Um, but the, um, the Yamada Nishiki, we harvested that row and I, I put it in the freezer and uh, didn't think much more about it. You know, it's long, tall, um, easy to fall down, lodge, we call it, which makes harvesting really difficult. But um, I kept the seed and I had the seed for probably 10 years. And um, then I got a call from the, the Japanese uh, sake company out of, uh, out of well, it's Takara, out of Berkeley, California. And they asked me if I had it. And I don't know how they found out that I might have it, but <laughs> I just got a call one night from a Japanese fellow and he asked me if I had Yamada Nishiki and I said, I do. And he got really excited. And within a few days, they were he was here uh, talking to me about it. And so we took the seed and we grew it and we increased it to a point that um, they could start doing tests with it. And so they wanted to they wanted to get their process down really good. And so this took about five years. We grew it about five years for them before they really wanted, um, you know, a bigger amount of rice. So that's, that's kind of how it started. Uh, one of the Jeremy or Whitney or Mark can tell you more about the, how it's grown, but uh, how the market has grown. But um, that's kind of how it started. Um, they were really excited about it, and they also uh, did really well with it. Uh, they won some gold medals, you know, on their on their brewing technique and their their socket. So uh, we were we were intrigued by it then and wondering where we could go next and how this was going to grow. And slowly, it has uh, taken off. So one of those one of those guys might tell you better than about the next step. So then I guess, so initially then, so Takara, they were looking for basically somebody who could reliably consistently produce a, a consistent quality product that they could use for domestic production of something. Right, okay. right. And, they, and we had the Japanese rice background and uh, we were successful with that. And we're, we've been successful with the Yamada Nishiki as well. And I guess they they thought of us first because of that, maybe. And so that from the point then, when when was that about then? When they when they reached out to you about what what year or so are we talking? Do you recall? One of you guys remember? I don't. Early two thousands at some point. I couldn't pinpoint the year, but they reach out, and then so then they reach out to you, and they want to. Okay, they they need. I, I obviously they need a 
a quality consistent product. What was, do you recall sort of what that back and forth was like or what they were looking for? And then sort of how long it took you to actually then get to a point where it was, okay, this is something that we can, that we can depend upon, we can rely upon, and we're going to bring this to market. They were asking about grain size. Um, they wanted to come out here when we planted it. They wanted to come out here when we harvested it. They came out in the middle of the year to see it growing. Um, they were interested in grain size and protein content, things like that. And we'd been through with all of that with the Koshi Yikari. And we were, you know, we knew, we knew what we were doing with um, tweaking the, the, the small things with rice. But they were, they were here regularly watching it grow. And it was a, sometimes a little bit of a pain because they want to know <laughs> when you're planting and, and we plant whenever the opportunity arrives, when the weather's right, the soil's right. And I can't wait till that point and then call them and say, okay, come now. Because <laughs> yeah. we, we need to start that day. And they finally understood that. And uh, we'd bring them out during harvest. We could kind of tell when that was going to be. And one of, the, one of the other quality parameters that we learned about through that time that we weren't, or at least I wasn't, familiar with prior to that was the Shimpaku, which as as another uh, tangent potentially. Um, okay. what's, we like what's tangents funny, on this show. What's that? That's okay. We like tangents on this show. Okay, yeah. So what <laughs> what's funny is that you know all rice to some extent has has some cloudiness in some of the grains. It's not a defined centralized Shimpaku like a, a Yamada Nishiki or something like that, but it's what we call chalk. And we um, we get deducted on price for having too much chalk in long grain or having too much chalk in medium grain. It's a, it's seen as a problem. So for us, it was a bit of a paradigm shift to realize, okay, we're looking to have as many chalky kernels as we possibly can. And so it was, um, it was a new concept for sure. So we've come to, to understand and appreciate the, um, the value of that Shimpaku though. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, Transit, not transitioning, but adding saccharase to your portfolio, it brings in a product that has a, a hyper-specific purpose, right? I mean, of course, you've got maybe certain varieties of rice that, okay, this is better with curries, or you often see associated with certain types of cuisine, but to, you know, to have something that's for a very specific purpose in processing, I mean, that's, that's a whole different, that's kind of a whole different paradigm, I guess you could, right? as, as you mentioned, so that makes it makes it definitely something very unique. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a whole new vocabulary. It's a whole new, um, you know, list of quality parameters. And it's, um, you know, it's a different group of individuals that you get to meet and, and come to know too, especially when you move into the craft breweries, which I suppose we'll talk about later. But, you know, in addition to these larger breweries, we've, we've gotten to know people in the craft brewery scene here um, in the United States and elsewhere. And, um, you know, they, what I see there is a lot of the same level of curiosity and um, artistry and, um, and desire to, um, you know, to make something really cool out of, out of what you have to work with there. And I think we, we feel a sense of camaraderie with that group as well. So it's, um, you know, it just exposes us to a whole different layer of, of contacts there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious, a bit of an aside, but when you started getting into sake rice growing, what was all your relationship with sake at that point? Your relationship or experience? I had never tried it because <laughs> I was in 
old enough, I don't think. Okay. <laughs> I had I had, I, had, I, had, I had a Japanese restaurant, but it wasn't it was it was probably low quality and wasn't something that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had had very limited exposure to it. I had tried it in Japan, specifically hot or warm warm sake. So mm. That was, uh, I, I thought it tasted like uh, kerosene with a little bit of dirt. <laughs> so I was really, <laughs> I was really surprised whenever uh, Takara brought the first bottle of theirs out, the chill sake, that, and it was so yeah. fruity and so crisp and so yeah. light. Uh, I was, I was blown away. Yeah. Uh, I certainly wasn't expecting that. Yeah. You know, I I think that's fairly typical with with many people's experience with sake here in the United States, even still, is they, you know, it's a it's a hot drink that's fairly um, just it's just an, a, a type of alcohol. And it, they don't understand a lot of times because they haven't been exposed to the nuances of that. And, um, you know, you see that growing where people are or appreciating that in the same way they do wines. And just like my dad was saying, the first time they brought out that first Junma Daigenjo mm. and um, we chilled it and, and opened it up, it was it was a completely different altering experience to realize, okay, when, when they talk about sake, it's something different than what we've been thinking about all this time. And now we understand why the rice matters. Now we understand why they need this variety and why all of those nuances and all of those details really do play a role in making a product that we can appreciate and respect. Absolutely, absolutely. So then has, has your relationship or affinity for the beverage evolved together with your, with your rice growing? Definitely, absolutely. we enjoy it yeah. tremendously. <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting though is the um, alcohol distribution laws are such um, here that we can't go to a store here in Arkansas and buy any any sake that's um, yeah. that's been produced with our rice by any of the brewers in other states. So um, you know, every now and then we'll get test bottles or samples or something like yeah. that. So even though we grow rice for a number of different brewers, um, it's not something we have easy access to. So that's that's oh, conversation for different probably, yeah. but it is kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a shame. It's you gotta we gotta do something about that. It's, it's like there's gotta be, there's gotta be. A, it's about time to remedy a few of those things. Yeah. <laughs> when we do get a sample bottle, though, we all rush to <laughs> mom and dad's house. Yeah. <laughs> to try it. I bet. I bet. Absolutely. And that will do it for part one of this two-part series of interviews with the folks at Isbell Farms. Part two of the series will be coming your way shortly, where we will more closely examine what the farm is doing with sake-specific rice varieties, how they are working with sake brewers across the U.S., and what the future of rice farming could look like in North America. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or feelings about this week's show or any of our shows, you can reach out to us at questions at sakeonair.com. If you happen to be on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you can find us at at sakeonair. This has been another production of Sake on Air, brought to you by the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and made possible through a joint production with Export Japan and Pasuke Productions. The show is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. And we will be back with part two again very soon. 
Until then, come by.